Hello, everyone. Welcome to Table Talks, a podcast by SCE Student Council. My name is Burke Maru, your host and moderator for today's episode. I'm here in our lovely SCE office with my fellow co-hosts, Vince Motesa, Madina Mosamova, and Khaled Nosa, all members of the founding team. But before we start, because this is our first episode, you're probably wondering, what is Table Talks? While Table Talks was created and inspired by the ethos of conversations that already naturally occur in studio spaces, we wanted to create a space that could capture those discussions and amplify multidisciplinary interactions. Our aim is not only to cultivate conversations, but to hear personal stories from individuals to understand perspectives, questions, and their aspirations. We believe it should be a safe space led by students for students to ground, inspire, and integrate. We're very excited to introduce our first ever guest on the show. You most likely have heard of him or received a few emails here and there, or simply seen him walking around campus. David Lewis is not only a practicing architect, he's a longtime faculty member and most recently the Dean of the School of Constructed Environments. In today's episode, we discuss the theme of past, present, and future, essentially digging a little deeper and getting to know David through personal stories and discussions of his journey, college experiences, and career trajectory. Here's the first recording with David Lewis starting us off with a little bit about himself. Well, first of all, thank you for in, uh, inviting me to be the uh, inaugural uh, <laughs> interviewee on, on, uh, uh, on, this, on this podcast. Um, well, I can give you a, a little bit of background um, that might be helpful in this context, because I think it's, uh, I didn't set out, let me put it this way, I didn't set out uh, when I was a kid to become an architect. It's okay. never really in the, in the plan. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in political science. And so I was interested in pursuing politics at that point and studying with a guy named Paul Wellstone at Carleton College, who then went on to become uh, the senator of Minnesota because of his interest in grassroots politics, uh, particularly in terms of, at that point, the challenges to the family farmer and the way in which the centralization of farming as a corporate enterprise was pushing upon the ability to have uh, essentially uh, farmers who were not to, you know, essentially developing and living on their own land. It was becoming economically unaffordable because of government policies. Um, and so I was always interested in the intersection between politics, um, agency, and how one makes change. Mm-hmm. Um, but got slightly disillusioned in that process by doing a, an internship at the State House in, uh, in Minnesota and realized that there was that it was politics as mm-hmm. opposed to agency. Uh, and there was a lot of, and so looked to try to figure out where the greatest capacity to build and make change would be. Became very interested in the history of architecture and so ended up getting a master's and a PhD at Cornell in the history of architecture, but doing it on the thesis on the domestication of nuclear war through the figure of the single-family bomb shelter. So really looking at how architecture works to 
be tied into broader geopolitical conditions, um, particularly through the way in which media and the figure or the, or the symbolic identity of, of architecture can help domesticate, in that case, the unknown, the, the, the catastrophic uh, conditions that were going to be wrought by nuclear war in the 1950s and the 1960s. But then realized at the end that I didn't want to become just a historian, so I went to practice and ended up getting a master's in the in Masters of Architecture at Princeton. But with a similar kind of interest in trying to negotiate between creative agency and social transformation. Um, and have uh, come to Parsons in part because of that capacity to be able to see those, those things as not dialectically opposed, but actually merged together in the way in which architecture is not only talked about, but also situated within the broader, the broader new school, dealing with questions of social agency and increasingly uh, what I feel to be the greatest challenge of climate change. I see. All right. Um, speaking of the past, um, we did our homework as well. Um, <laughs> um, you, you, you have a, a twin brother yeah. that was also an architect. So we're very curious to know if you were going on this journey with him and like who were you looking up to and what were the forces that influenced you in the direction in which you took? Well, um, so my brother is an architect and we're partners in the, in the same firm, mm -hmm. Lewis Amaki, Lewis Althiel Architects. My sister is also an architect. <laughs> but, um, she is a, 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 she works on materials and particularly upon uh, sustainable materials and carbon questions and is, a, is at Henning Larson in uh, Denmark. Um, my father was an architectural historian, so I, I grew into this sort of traveling around with him looking at um, buildings, and my mother is a cultural historian, so there was always sort of this sense of that, that broader understanding of examining the world around you with open eyes, uh, and being, being curious about what, why things are the way they are, but not accepting them as face value, um, and seeing it as something to be changed. So we never chose to say, okay, you will both go to architecture school and we'll start a firm together. That was never a plan. Uh, with my brother, so oh, that nice. that came about more through uh, situations after after graduate school in which we found ourselves in New York collaborating on installations and developing work that came out of that. So um, you went to school, did a bachelor's in political science for four years, yeah. and then did a few years at Princeton, but also Cornell. Yeah. So it's almost like a decade of education. Right. Um, is that what also influenced you along that journey to become a teacher? Mm -hmm. um, were you exposed to that? Were you also inspired by that? What, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, in, in Cornell, because I was in a PhD program, you're doing, a, you're, you're acting as a teaching assistant um, through that process. So the, the ability to be able to teach as well as to think about practice was always something that I was interested in doing. Um, it, it comes about by, you know, it's one of the things that is one of the great challenges is, is to be able to talk about why you're doing something it gives you a capacity to be able to reflect upon it in a way that I think only elevates your ability to do it better. Uh, in other words, you have to, if you have to explain to someone or, or, or to excite someone about how they should do it, it also then reflects upon your own ability to be self-reflexive. And that, I think, is one of the great benefits about teaching as well as practicing simultaneously. I don't see them as opposed. Um, see them as actually part and parcel of a similar kind of endeavor mm -hmm. of, of making social transformation. I see. Um, 
When, in terms of uh, your practice and uh, how you met your uh, other principal architect, Mark Tsurumaki, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. um, how did you guys meet? What's the story behind that? Well, my brother had gone to, so we grew up in a small town in Ohio. Okay. We drew a line north to south in high school. <laughs> and my brother said, you go west, I'm going to go east. <laughs> <laughs> and that was fine. Uh, so he ended up going to Wesley and I went to Carleton College. Um, and he, uh, he then went to Princeton as well in graduate school for architecture, completing, and then, and so he completed in the spring semester of, I think, 92. And I started in the fall mm -hmm. of 92. I think some faculty members thought we were there for six, <laughs> there for six years. Um, Mars Tamaki was, uh, was in the, in the year ahead of, of Paul, and they knew each other in graduate school and developed a working relationship, uh, sort of you know, after-hours partnership, doing competitions and doing exhibitions at Storefront for Art and Architecture um, with another colleague named Pete Pilsinski. And so we, it just came out of that collaborative process. Uh, when I graduated three years later, moved into New York, so working with a firm and working uh, nights and weekends to be able to develop a portfolio of work with the goal of uh, starting a firm. I see. Right. Um, I guess a part of your, your practice or collaboration um, was also, you know, getting works into galleries like the MoMA or San Francisco yeah. or Carnegie Mellon. Um, what was the idea behind that? Like, what, were you guys just creating works to be exhibited or was it a part of your practice as well? Well, it, it comes out of the, it comes out of the, the practice of architecture being the act of making representations. Mm. In other words, ultimately, the definition of the architect comes about by the moment in which one is no longer a, on the job site, but actually doing drawings. And so this this goes back to the goes back five hundred years to the construct to the nature of drawing itself. So that if you can draw something, you're situated in, in an interesting way. Um, observing and mapping out what the construction should be as opposed to having to be the master uh, stonemason or craftsman working on the site. So we were, we've always been interested in the role of representation, not only how it situates the practice of architecture, but also how it projects a future that is unanticipated. In other words, the, the, uh, the act of drawing, the act of making representation is simultaneously a mapping of a new future, it's, it's also at the same time as speculation on what could be. Um, and so, so our interest in representation has been at the fore of the firm uh, since its founding. Uh, we never intended to do pure exhibitions, and, right. but that's one of, the, one of the, I think, happy consequences of being really interested in the complexities of representations, particularly whether it's complexities of working between different types of digital and analog, intentionally merging them in ways that produces a friction between the seemingly linear processes mm -hmm. of uh, digital workflows, or really a, a, a more recent interest that has come out of our own work in, into the history and performance of section, which has led to manual of section. Yeah. So that interest in representation is not simply something one does, but actually something one thinks through and has to be self-conscious about that process in order to really fully expand its capacities to be able to uh, not only do the work, but be the work itself. 
um, nowadays we're not working as much analog wise right. and you just said that we think through these means of representation right. um, what do you think is happening to the field right now that we're not really using our hands to think as much we have all these uh, softwares and uh, technologies that are facilitating a lot of it do you believe that we're losing some, some of that thinking process it's it's a shift and it's definitely a change and I think one of the things that I would I would interest offer a, an interest in healthy skepticism. In other words, rather than a pure framework that technology, any new technology, is in and of itself uh, an improvement, rather than saying, well, what are the things that are being offered? What's being shifted and transformed? So it's also being lost in that process, and try to hold in, in, in creative tension as opposed to simply adopting a um, a belief that technological change in and of itself is an improvement. And I think this is, you know, this is, this gives you a much more interesting perspective in terms of the kinds of work. How can you claim more analog systems that are short circuiting versus more digital ones that are maybe more complicated? I mean, in, in a simplified way of, of thinking about it, um, hand drawing sketches or otherwise mm -hmm. are incredibly fast paradoxically faster than digital systems, but really imprecise. Mm -hmm. Digital forms of working can be incredibly precise, mm -hmm. dimensionally precise, but actually often are really slow. Absolutely. You know, which is the exact opposite of what one thing <laughs> oh, digital yeah. you know, computers are incredibly fast over the size of those processors. Yeah. And so we're interested in a sort of friction between the two, like how can you use one against the other, the speed of hand drawing or sketching versus the accuracy of the other to be able to fold against uh, uh, both processes uh, in order to come up with also something that is unanticipated by working between systems as opposed to adopting what tend to be uh, more predictable workflows that come out of digital working processes. So, do you think there can be middle ground between sketching and um, technological approach, how can we combine potentialism? Is it a new question for us to mm -hmm. look into? Yeah, and I think that's, that's for each instant. And I think this is the, 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 the open-ended framework that, that should be presented, which is you should have the skills to draw both by hand, but also to work digitally. And so it's not a, it's not a choice of either or, it's rather which one is gonna enable a thought process that is that is of the moment or of the time or adapted to the challenge. Mm -hmm. So for instance, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do hand-drawn, hardline, detailed plans where you're laboring over something and then having to change it. So yeah. you know, to do a hand-drawn construction set wouldn't make a lot of sense. But on the other hand, to do a quick massing model may take a lot more time digitally than a quick study or a quick sketch. You can also think about underlays and ways to work you know, layering systems in which a certain amount of accuracy in a digital model becomes the basis for them doing multiple iterations that can be done much faster by hand to get to a more accurate model. So I think this, this way of working in a, in a more open-ended manner also asks that you're taught how to do this so that you have that capacity and that foundation to be able to work. And that's one thing that I'm, that I want to make sure continues is that the ability to, to work by hand, particularly by sketching, the, you know, the fluency by which one understands how to sketch, um, 
is critical, not just in an, in an office, but also in the field. You're working with a contractor, you want to quickly work out. You're not going to say, oh, wait, let me try, do the Rhino model and go back and after three or four years. They're going to be like, how do you want us to do this thing? And if you can sketch it in the field, it gives you a greater fluency by which you can communicate. Yes, yes. Uh, Communication's a big part yeah. of it, for sure. Yeah. And also with clients. I mean, you'll be able to sit across the table and sketch out ideas, and you know, particularly in, as you know, the, the conflation of the digital and the analog is most exciting. I mean, the one, two, three, two, <laughs> two tablets here, and here. Yeah. which ability to pull up something and sketch. I mean, yeah. this is this is what we've all been doing for the last couple of years, sketching on on Zoom to be able to really quickly get at these things. So that binary is breaking down. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it's not a one. It's it's really not a choice of one over the other. It's rather how can you play them against each other to produce also something that is much more akin to what you would want your work to look like and yeah. the process you'd want to pursue, as opposed to one that's set into a program. Absolutely. Um, I think the section stood out to me, especially the manual section, because I had a special journey with the section. I think we come into design school and you, we, you think of a section as something of a requirement or a technical drawing. Mm -hmm. You do your plans, you do your 3Ds, and then you're like, okay, now I just have to pin up a section. Right. And I think as I went along, I thought I, I saw like the benefit of using this section not as a, just a tool of representation, but also a tool of design. Yeah. How do you design using a section? And we see this section as almost a dying art form, at least outside of art and art, and art school. I wanted to ask you, what made you decide that as the section specifically, the specific aspect of representation is what you wanted to dive in and expand on for? Uh, to, to have this book. To, to do the book. Well, it, it, it came out of we, a, a way of working where oftentimes we were doing representations for either competitions or for presentations to, uh, for, for a particular project where we, we were using sections because they could both show how things are layered, but also the spatial experience. Mm -hmm. So you get both the understanding of the, the architectural form, but also how it's inhabited simultaneously. We, we then realized that what was happening, and it's exactly what you described, is that the section was becoming the last thing you did in a digital-driven process. And it would be a clipping plane pulled in, isolated, made 2D, printed out the last minute. And it's not really a section. It's a cut through a digital model. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it would look section-like, but not really have the sense of exploration, particularly of the material or the spatial or the performative possibilities. So all three of us are teachers, and we realized there wasn't one, a language for section, a shorthand for communication in a crit where you, someone would put up, put up a section or a clipping plane printout. And people would go, oh, that's an okay section. You should probably make it better. But what did that mean? Or, oh, that's a really great section. Why is it great? Yeah. No, is it simply because it's complex? Plan has a much richer history. You can talk about things as being en filade or en suite or having symmetry or its relationship to site and organization and how it's clustered or not. There wasn't a similar kind of language for sections. So part of the premise of the book was developing a series of shorthands, or, or essentially a heuristic structure for or categorization for sections, so that someone says, oh, looks like you're using shear, 
someone would know, oh, that's what that means. Or you could really nest these things a little bit more interestingly. So that by having a shorthand, it actually enables the section to be a site of design because you can have a basis of conversation about it. Mm -hmm. Without that language, with a shared set of references, it's harder to talk about it as, a, as something to be a site of development. So we wanted to make sure that the book was organized according to these categories, not to make the categories themselves important, but to give it a, give it a language for, for particularly in academic institutions, for education, but also within practice. Like we wanted to shorthand in our own office. But it was also wanting to be able to look at section as a site itself of great exploration, exactly to your point, which is instead of seeing it as the last thing you do, what happens if it comes much earlier in the design process and it's the site of development it's in some ways an impossible drawing because if you section a building, it's likely to be coming down, right? <laughs> so you usually see section paradoxically as the thing that you draw to show someone how to build it. Mm. It's the invisible cut that cuts through the building before it's even imagined. Mm. So it has a sort of magical quality to it that also is the very framework by which one looks at gravity, looks at thermal forces, looks at the way in which one experiences space, you experience it vertically, not in plan. You really understand the, the world much more as a kind of experience of the perspective looking forward, not as a planned condition. So all these things sort of folded into wanting to write this book to be able to effectively give a new way of framing the discourse. Um, also, what was the process in selecting? Because there's a few very special projects you guys mm -hmm. went after in this book. And I love all of them and how she looked to those when I'm mm -hmm. doing my projects. Um, what went into decisions to pick these specific projects mm -hmm. um, to describe why the sections are important? Right. Well, the, the process was uh, we set some basic categories, which is it had to be since 19, I think 1900. Um, it had to be built. So it didn't have to be still standing, but it had to be a built project. Um, and we were looking for projects that would exemplify the categories. So they weren't necessarily all the most complicated sections, but they were the ones in many ways that would exemplify these categories to make it really clear what an extrusion is, what a stack system is, what a nested system, etc. So the choice process was really one of culling down. You know, how can we get down to a, a very discrete set that would exemplify these types? The other was trying to make sure we had enough information. Could we get the original drawings? Can we figure out what the original section was? Some projects, we couldn't get that. We, we couldn't uh, get the kind of detail that we knew we needed to be able to make an accurate drawing. We also wanted to make sure that they were of varying scales, from houses all the way to multi-story buildings. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the challenges, that, that the one thing that's standardized in all the sections is the size of the book. Like the wow. same section is in the exact same, that either has to fit on this piece. And so the houses, you'd see a lot more detail, but on some of the other projects where they're really big, you'd see much less detail. Um, and so that was part of the challenge of the and book. Sometimes you tilted the Sometimes we tilted well, it. Right? Yeah, yeah, we so. would tilt it a couple when they were vertical because yeah. they just wouldn't fit in the layout of the book. So the constraint of the book, the fact that it would go over the center of the gutter was a challenge. We looked at multiple ways to make this, but ultimately we wanted a book that was about the cost of a pizza. Um, <laughs> so it's $29.95, so it would be easily 
purchased, accessible, sitting on the desk, and you flip through it, and it was a because the fidelity of the line weights is you can't get in a digital version mm -hmm. in a way that's as accessible because the, it becomes too large a file. Mm -hmm. um, so we wanted to make sure that the physical nature of the book was accessible, mm -hmm. so that it was affordable, uh, uh, and that was part of the reason why it goes over the gutter and it's all black and white. Um, you mentioned earlier um, the importance of how education and, and um, teaching comes with practice. Yeah. So what was your transition? Like, what made you want to become a professor or, or in this case, become the dean of the CE? Yeah. Well, I've been, I've been teaching as long as I've been practicing. Okay. So I've never seen them as actually separate. Um, there's only very limited time right after graduate school in which I wasn't wasn't teaching, um, so that's always been part part of part of uh, what what I've pursued. Um, the question of the dean really comes to another issue, which has to do with thinking about what are the challenges ahead for both education but also for the practice, and that that that's something increasingly I think is the challenges put upon those working in the constructed environment, whether it's architecture, product design, lighting, or interior design, is to how we're going to construct a world that's truly truly sustainable from the standpoint of the material choices we're making. Um, and that's what I saw was latent within the practice, and more than latent actually, um, part of the way in which this, the School of Construction Environments is set up is to think about the material conditions in the broader framework of of what, what, what we do. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's the only school that ties these four disciplines together in the same practice or in the same school to be able to understand them as a collective practice. Um, and so part of taking on the deanship was to try to make that even more foregrounded in, within the school. That the, the, everything from the question of the embodied carbon in our materials, their long-standing impacts upon human health that the Healthy Materials Lab has been researching and disseminating for years, mm -hmm. and how that then plays out in terms of your education. Like, uh, coming out of the school, it's critically important that it's not just an afterthought, that it's not just about operational, you know, heating, cooling, and running of buildings, but actually it's the very basis of which we make them is increasingly central to the, the, the decisions that the disciplines of SC need to lead out and to be vocal about because the time frame that we have to be able to meet those conditions is increasingly small. I mean, it's within eight, 10 years. So that's the, that's, you know, you can only do so much as a faculty member. As a dean, the hope is that I can uh, help uh, galvanize that, that issue even more to the fore. So um, you mentioned spending as much time uh, practicing as you did uh, teaching yeah. um, and for a lot of the students coming out of school there's like always this steep curve when you start working of other things that you didn't think uh, were present in the field yeah. uh, what are some of the things you know having a foot in, on both sides uh, that you think uh, are missing in the educational system to prepare us for what's happening afterwards yeah. or some of the things perhaps that are happening in industry that are kind of uh, not catering to the students coming out of school. Yeah, well, I think this is this is one of the the interesting things about um, about uh, having taught now for uh, twenty years at, at the New School and at Parsons is that the expectation for what someone is to know 
in the time frame of school has increased. But the time you're in school hasn't. It's still the same. So it's still three years. It's still six semesters if you're in the MR graduate program from the time you start. So part of the question is, what are you, is it about knowledge transfer and getting all the kind of information that you need to know, everything from how to deal with questions of site and geology to issues of form and material to code and social expectations? And that is huge. You know, is it possible to be able to put all that information into a curriculum? And I'd argue that no, it's not. What is possible, though, is to frame the education as a way of, of expanding your agency to be curious about the world, to be able to ask questions, to have the skills to be able to engage, but also to not feel as though the totality of knowledge is, has to be packed into those three years. So the, what you're, what the framework for the education is really one of making sure that you're not seeing it as an end condition at the end of three years, but actually this is the opening up and you should be given, the, to be truly empowered, the sense of not only responsibility, knowledge about the key things that are critical, skills to build and engage in, but most importantly a sense of curiosity that what's out there doesn't have to be the way it is, mm -hmm. that it can be changed. Absolutely. And that change needs to be led by questions of equity, justice, has to be led by an understanding of the diversity of the human species, and at the same time, the fact that we're not living in the best world we could be, and that world is still to come. And that's incumbent upon all of you graduating to have that sense of not only agency, but also to be able to make those transformations yourself. Which is very different than we're training you to become a practitioner to be able to work in a very known condition that's tracked. Mm -hmm. That one isn't, that's, that one gives you maybe purchase to be able to go into a firm, but doesn't necessarily give you the capacity to make radical change. Mm -hmm. so I think at the heart of what the new school believes in is the capacity to make social change and education should inform that as a basis of which you then come out and make those changes as opposed to purely understanding it as a degree for practice. Um, I think um, discourse and having conversations and um, employing multidisciplinary interactions is, is a part of that, mm -hmm. right? Um, and for instance, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the SCE um, Climate Colloquium, mm -hmm. and so do you envision having those types of interactions and events to continue in the future? or um, like yeah, other events yeah, 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 absolutely. I think part of the, one of the things that um, is has not been as foregrounded is the unanticipated social interactions that occur um, around courses. Uh, and this is uh, colloquiums, um, symposiums, even conversations like this are part of that process. Um, with the online um, process, it tends to be relatively scripted. I mean, there isn't the conversation after the lecture, per se, that occurs, that then takes it in new directions, both for students and for faculty and participants. And I think this issue of discourse is one that is really, also goes to the question of culture. Like, how do you build a culture of a school that, that fosters a kind of open dialogue 
of diversities of ideas, particularly ones that don't agree, yeah. and it allows a platform for the disagreement to be played out. Because I think this is, this is one of the things that is critical for any school, is to hold as many voices out of respect with each other, but at the same time recognize that it's not privileging one over the other, it's really making sure that the understanding of difference is played out with the, with the goal of, of shared equity of social transformation. So this is where, this is the foundation of discourse, foundation of the formation of knowledge. And so the climate colloquium was a kind of moment, well, it, we can do this. We can get so many people in a very short time presenting an incredible number of ideas that would never be possible if everyone was coming up to a screen or very hard. Yeah. But on the other hand, it misses that after conversation. Yes. And so how do you, how do you hold that as a move along to the next year or so when hopefully we'll have less of a challenge of, of uh, a pandemic. And uh, alongside these conversations as a part of the future vision for the SCA, what is the role of leadership and collaboration and how is it tied into the system? Leadership in terms of what? In terms of? In, in the leading the conversations, but also in the practice. Mm -hmm. Tra transforming and getting the steps further. Right. right. Well, I think I think that there's. Let me start the answer by what what I what I see as leadership that is not uh, no longer a sustainable model. Mm -hmm. It's one of the of the uh, call it the disciplinary expert or master who disseminates information, right? The, or the cult figure which has occurred in many schools, in which you have a kind of cult-like you know, uh, perception of someone who holds that, uh, that, uh, that position in the field. Uh, that ends up usually replicating that process without critical discourse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or you're just handing information because it's absolute. On the other hand, I do think there's a recognition, needs to be a recognition in any academic endeavor, that there are different levels of knowledge. Right? and the expertise and different levels of engagement that should be brought to any collective, collective table to be able to ensure that, that the voices are understood through that level of experience and different types of experience. Right? And, but from an academic leadership standpoint is to make sure that, that that culture is set up and the platform is set up for a sharing of those in which it is done in an equitable way, one in which one there is a understanding of listening at the heart of education as opposed to pure information transfer. Um, and that goes to everything from courses, the way uh, uh, studios are structured, seminars are structured, all the way down to lectures. Mm -hmm. you know, there is, I want the knowledge of someone who has more than I do. I need to learn from them. But on the other hand, it shouldn't be simply the handing off of information. It should be ability to have that discourse. Yeah. Conversation. Yeah. With regards to like listening and uh, the, the transfer of knowledge, a lot of us in our crits, what we struggle with is we have several critiques and people that are more experienced than mm -hmm. us are throwing um, uh, their ideas and sharing their knowledge with us. Um, what do you advice for students to do uh, facing with all this information? How mm -hmm. do you filter through some of yeah. this feedback that, that's coming at you? Because as a student, you, you know, you're trying to figure out how to incorporate and listen to these things. So once you listen, how do you digest this information? Yeah, 
it's a it's a really interesting question. So let me try to address it from the standpoint of the nature of the critique. Right? Mm. Namely, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea is that you have things up on a wall yeah. or on a screen, That's you're standing up, everyone's sitting on a table or <laughs> sitting on a chair. <laughs> um, if they, if they no chairs, they're sitting on the table. Um, and you're presenting and then there's kind of a quiet moment and then people start <laughs> pointing out things. Yes. And so why is that the case? Like, what, why, why, and this is pretty unique to the discourse of design, architecture, interior design, lighting, product, has this particular kind of discourse. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that is really interesting about it is that it, it is performative. Namely, you are asked to stand up, verbally present your work, and to present it in a way that you almost have to anticipate, well, what will the critique be? And so how should I present the work to be able to get someone to understand in a very short time frame, a couple minutes, yeah. how you want them to interpret what you've spent hours, if not weeks, working on? Right? And they're only going to give you a couple minutes, then you're gone. <laughs> That's not that different than what you do when you stand up in front of a community board. That's not that much different than you stand up in front of a board of trustees and you're trying to convince them to spend $20 million on your project. You have a couple minutes. So part of the process of doing it is trying to figure out not how much knowledge is going to come by, but think about it as a performance piece where you're like, okay, how am I going to present this project in a way in which the verbal presentation, including how I move, you know, where I stand and where, what am I going to focus upon, what do I want people to think about, and what, you know, that whole, it's a performance piece mm -hmm. that you're learning how to do that because it's what you uniquely have to do in the public nature of constructing the environment. You are responsible to the future for how you are imagining the resources of this earth to be gathered together to orchestrate human as well as biological diversity's behavior. Right? So it's, it's, I would look at it less of what comes at you in terms of the specifics as the content, but what are the things that, I would look not at what are the particulars, but what is the category of the kinds of critique you get. Is it about your representation? Is it about how you verbally presented it? Is it about some aspect of the project that someone's interested? They want. So in other words, try to stand outside your critique when you start getting criticism and try to think, well, what are they talking about? Is it what I hope they would be talking about? Mm -hmm. Is there something I can learn from it as opposed to putting yourself between the critics and your work? Because if you do it, then it becomes all about you and it's mm -hmm. personal. And the whole point about this studio is to figure out how to be able to stand outside watching yourself so you can learn about that process because that process is really critical. You're, you're being taught how to, to truly represent and present a future. And that's why crits are so critical to the discourse. Mm -hmm. That's why the nature of standing up, it's not, the, it's not the positive and negative critique that comes out, but it's the very performance is so central to what we do, we, as in the design discourse, which is very different than, say, designing something or making something that just hangs in a gallery where you never have to be responsible for it. Mm -hmm. 
it is what it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, a lot of students struggle with you know separating yourself from the work because you spend so much time inside your model, you're drawing, yeah. you get up there and, and you're still stuck in it. You're yeah. really out yeah. of it. So you're struggling to reach that dialogue that you want to have. Yeah. So it's a big struggle and it's almost like you do need all these different studios yeah. to finally understand um, how to reach that. And get, and get the confidence to say, you know, almost a, my, my recommendation is often when, when the crit happens is to, have, is to stand to the side and start looking at the work. Because the hope is that it's not aimed at you, but it's at the work and what you said, and become a participant in that process. Mm -hmm. Raise questions, like, what, you said that, that's interesting, why'd you say that? So that it's not, but it's really hard to do, because you've invested so much, you am tired, and, you know, but that, that's something that I think should also be taught in the process. Like, what is the name, why do we do design reviews like this? What, what's, the, what's the intent of it? It becomes habit, because it's part of what most people, the faculty, have grown up doing. But it's also, there's an intentionality behind it, which I think is really important to not get lost, because it's so critical to what you end up having to do, or asked to do, and it's a really important, powerful role that can, should be done right. It's interesting that you say that, because um I really wish sometimes I had a twin that could be presenting for me and I'd be looking back. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know what, this doesn't sound great right now. Yeah. We should work on the yeah. presentation of it because we need to learn that the vocal, when you're learning the drawing and the speaking, it's almost like you're learning all these tools mm -hmm. to communicate and have the dialogue, right? Yeah. So um, part of the education is understanding that you need to master all these different facets yeah. of it to reach that, right? Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you guys also have the same experiences yeah. as well. If you're I playing. always thought, I always thought of the your the crit is almost like how you present yourself is almost fifty percent of the presentation. Mm -hmm. I've seen projects where like I thought it was going to go another way, but the presentation and how you portray your project and how you stand up there and explain yourself almost sometimes either saves you or uh, takes you the other direction. Mm -hmm. And now that you see it, it's almost like a, you, it, it's at the end of the day, we're almost storytellers. You have to like, stand up there and tell a story. Mm -hmm. And if you're not able to do that, then it doesn't matter what you have up there. Nobody's going to be able to uh, understand it. But if you stand up there and take it as a narrative and take the guest through the story, mm -hmm. you're able to easily explain your project. But yeah, I think it's interesting now that we see, uh, see it as a performance act. It makes it easier for you to just stand up there almost and think of it as a performance rather than it's almost your acting instead of how then like you said it, it removes you from the model you're almost freed from like this is I spend this many hours it's almost like I'm just gonna stand up there and the idea is gonna stand for yeah. itself yeah. it's hard to separate because you spend so many hours on yeah. it <laughs> it's like your little baby it's, yeah. 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 it's really like your child so you have to you know disconnect from them mm -hmm. as well from my experience, it was interesting last semester presenting in a way that at the end you can pose a question. So you present mm -hmm. in a way that uh, you address viewers into what is interesting to you to get out of the critique. Yeah. What is your purpose of presenting? What are you intending to get from your viewers? What knowledge or insight you're expecting? Yeah. So I think this was a very interesting part for me to approach in a way that you can address the critique mm -hmm. in the way you want to yeah. perceive it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a big part of it's confidence, right? Or, or I feel like a lot of students have experience anxiety. It's a, 
Mm -hmm. um, you know, so much that we we work really hard, or it's we spend months on our project, and you know, having the confidence or understanding that it's a conversation. It's not the end all of your project. You know, you worked hard, and, and making sure to give yourself credit as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, that kind of leads me into um, some of our questions that we mm -hmm. um like what type of advice would you would you give to students about overcoming anxiety of whether it's their future pro prospects or or um, how to approach their work or their, their practice? Mm -hmm. it's a, that's a that's an interesting question. I'm not sure I have um, a depth of knowledge to really engage the full frame of, of anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that one of the one of the best ways to address questions of, of anxiety, and this is, is, is through the issue of mindfulness, which means being aware of the presentness of where you're at. Mm. Um, and that increasingly is challenged by the number of distractions that are, that are part of the technology we're at. So I, so I think that one of the ways to address uh, anxiety is to try to figure out how to reinforce focus. Um, in your own work, and the, the the capacity to be able to focus and know what you're getting at, what's the question that you're pursuing, mm -hmm. you know, how are you pursuing it in the most complete way that you have within the time frame, and not setting up a kind of absolute perfect answer versus a wrong answer, but rather what is the what is the inquiry that's at play, and have you come to the point where you're presenting something where you've pursued this and have questions that follow it. Mm -hmm. But I think anxiety is a very, it's a much broader topic than that. So, uh, because it does raise a whole issue of the, the issue, the challenge of what it means to study today, particularly in the last couple of years in, in the middle of a So we're almost are running out of time, but uh, before, before we go, um, what are some of the words that you have for the students or some of the challenges that you see that we're gonna be facing? Um, mm -hmm. in, in the future because we're designing and learning to design for a world that's to come. Right. And so there are issues that are uh, to come that we need to prepare for and think about uh, perhaps when we're going through our critiques and designing our projects, mm -hmm. things that we should be paying attention to. What are those things that you believe are important? Right. Well, I would, I would approach it from um, a, a critique of uh, of um, of negativity, let's put it that way. That, that if you listen purely to reports about, and I'll be specific about this, about the challenges to biodiversity and climate change mm -hmm. and issues of uh, increasingly extreme weather, there's a certain lack of agency and there's a sort of doomsayer nature. Like this, there's nothing that can be done. We're on a track that is already too far gone um, and you, you can't make the change. I'd flip it the other way and say actually one of the things that's most exciting and I think is the most challenging but also the greatest opportunity is that we're at a point in which the practices that have led us to where we are now have to be fundamentally changed. Namely, it's a design practice, particularly if you're looking at architecture, in which the role of the architect is increasingly the assembly of products. Mm. And those are pr pr products that are put on, on, on into the marketplace and you're simply assembling them. That process doesn't work anymore. 
because the products themselves are coming out of a essentially a fossil fuel-based energy system that is not just not sustainable, but we simply can't do it anymore, which opens up a whole new door, which is say, well, what, how do we build? How are we going to inhabit this earth in a way that is much more meaningful, healthy, and truly, in a sense, regenerative? Right? Which means that instead of thinking about the design as purely a question of form and aesthetics, one in which it's about you know, the, the, the beauty and aesthetics of architecture, of interiors, of products, or lighting, but it's actually the whole gamut of things having to do with the material, where they come from, and how are they getting assembled, what is their impact upon the earth, and where are they ultimately going to go? And you start looking at it that way, it totally opens up the capacity for doing design in completely different ways. That, that path is not really known. So this is both what's exciting and potentially anxiety-driving, <laughs> is that it means not, you can't do things as they have been done, yes. because that, that is going to lead us into a situation where we're not going to be enabled to inhabit this earth. How do we do it? What are the ways in which we build using plant-based systems, using systems that aren't just less bad for the world, but truly regenerative in a climate as well as a climate justice standpoint? That's a huge opportunity. It's the equivalent, I'd say, to what happened in the Industrial Revolution, where all of a sudden the capacity to use fossil fuels to produce steel, produce concrete, change the relationship of design and labor. The labor was now being done through the energy of industrialized processes. Now what happens? How are we going to use very different kinds of materials to be able to inhabit and produce the way that are constructed environments? That's an incredible opportunity, and you're at a time where that is not going to be handed to you, it's going to be made from within. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like some of the anxieties also come because we have to address so many things because we're not disregarding the environmental cost of doing the things we do. We've seen the aftermath of the past practices of the past yeah. century and what's going on now. So all of us right now have to look at a lot of issues with regarding maybe like water collection, energy, uh, solar energy, and analysis of wind, but also perhaps um, social and political issues yeah. that are also happening. How do you make people want to live together as opposed to be more divided, right? Um, so I think with regards to that, uh, we need to focus also more on uh, how can people, that's why like, we work a lot, you know, we have a lot of international students mm -hmm. working together um, to, to understand how that dialogue can be built uh, as a community uh, rather than just uh, one singular, uh, very well-admired architect. Like, uh, mm -hmm. You made it to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening. We want to give a big thank you to David Lewis for taking the time to speak with us. He gave us so much wisdom and important perspectives from his experience in the industry and his role in academia. If you get a chance, definitely take a look at David's book, The Manual of Section. It's a wonderful reference book for designers and architecture enthusiasts. Table Talk's theme song is produced by Ethan Seamongle, a fellow Parsons Architecture student and close friend. He's a man of many talents. Definitely check out his work on Spotify. Stay tuned for the next episode coming very soon with other industry professionals and fellow students. Subscribe, like, follow, whichever platform you're listening through. But until next time, stay safe 
We'll see you soon. Thank you.